Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Natera, a pioneer and global leader in cell-free DNA testing. Natera's Panorama has been trusted in over 3 million pregnancies and was recently validated in the SMART study, the largest prospective NIPT study, which demonstrated improved accuracy and positive predictive value for 22Q11.2 deletions. Visit natera.com forward slash 22Q to learn more. Today, uh, we are going to talk about the language we use when we give back non-invasive prenatal screening, NIPS tests. I remember the moment when my daughter-in-law called to say she had got her NIPS results back and she was having a girl. It was very exciting. Not because she had a preference, not because we had a preference. It would have been equally exciting if they told her she's having a boy, first child. And it would have been a whole lot more accurate had they told her that she was having a cheerful little monkey. That turned out to be. <laughs> but as she said to me that morning, it made the whole thing feel much more real. Late in pregnancy, when you can feel tiny heels grinding into your rib cage, it all becomes very, very real. But in the beginning, when all you feel is tired and nauseous, the idea that you are incubating a new person feels pretty abstract. But gender reveal parties, and I'm just going to go there and I apologize if I'm yucking your yums, but gender reveal parties are gross. Not that I have anything against cupcakes, pink cupcakes, blue cupcakes, any cupcakes, but gender reveal parties are gross. They often involve confetti and glitter, both gross. They, they often involve explosive devices and have caused multiple wildfires and actually killed party guests. Google gender reveal disaster. It's a whole category. And finally, and for the purposes of this show, most importantly, they don't reveal gender. I guess sex reveal parties sound a bit like an orgy, which is a weird vibe for what is essentially a baby shower. As one of my favorite students eloquently put it to me many years ago, Shout out to you, Thomas Ward, if you are listening. Gender is here, point at the head, and sex is here, point between the legs. In fact, the woman credited with inventing the gender reveal party, an L.A. blogger, recently announced that she regrets starting the trend and that, irony alert, the girl child she announced with pink icing is now a 10-year-old who hates pink and prefers wearing suits. But of course... Genetic counselors often play a starring role in the gender reveal drama because for couples who find out via NIPS, they are likely to deliver the news. And this, my guest today suggests in a recent opinion piece in Perspectives, is an opportunity to do better. Rather than reify existing assumptions about the relationship between chromosomes and gender, we can inform, educate, and possibly irritate the hell out of our patients by giving them more accurate and nuanced information about what the test does and does not say. Joining me on The Beagle today are Hannah Lauren, a reproductive genetic counselor at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where, by the way, my first child was born, and Kim Zahowski. Kim, did I say, pronounce your last name correctly? Excellent. A cancer counselor at Boston Medical Center and a faculty member at the BU Genetic Counseling Program. Welcome, Hannah and Kim. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Great. So, Hannah, let's start with you. Why did you think it was important to talk about this topic? 
Great question. Well, I think the area of inclusivity for gender diverse folks has always been an area of interest for mine, just given the larger disparities that we see in the healthcare system, which we can get into a little bit later. But I think where this article in particularly came from was the slight discomfort that I felt during my prenatal rotation in grad school. And in this rotation, I was following the template that my supervisors and genetic counselors as a whole had set out for me in calling out NIPT, NIPS, cell-free DNA. I know everyone calls it differently depending on what part of the country we're in. And I felt a little bit, a little I guess, nudge of discomfort when I was calling these results and patients were ecstatic at the news that it's a girl or it's a boy. And I was thinking about the people in my life who didn't identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. And I was also thinking about my emerging understanding of sex and gender as very distinct entities. And as I grew as a counselor and grew as a student, I really wanted to push back against the practice that prenatal genetic counselors have. And I I say prenatal genetic counselors, knowing that there's a large heterogeneity in practice. But I do know that having that language of girl and boy around NIPT results is very common. And so I um, had this idea with Kim to write out a rationale for why we should be changing our practices around calling out these results and really around talking about sex chromosomes in general, really pushing against uh, the bioessentialist assumptions that sex chromosomes are equal to gender and that there are only two genders. I, I, can. I think for convenience, just for convenience, we should pick one of those terms. I also use them interchangeably. Mm-hmm. What's your, should we do NIPT, NIPS? What do, what do you want to do? Just for this conversation. Yeah, I'd say NIPT seems to be the uh, most ubiquitous. So maybe we can just stick with that one. Okay, excellent. Hannah, what do you think are the main takeaways from the piece that you guys wrote together? What, what do you... But you want genetic counselors who read it to remember. Yeah, I would like genetic counselors to remember that we are one of the first medical professionals to ever link and um, outline the significance of what sex chromosomes are. And so we have a responsibility to our patients and to our profession to be accurate in our representation. Yeah, um, you're, you're, I'm going to quote this. Kim, can you, maybe you can comment on this quote, which I thought was very interesting. Genetic counselors are in a prime position to educate patients on the differences between sex and gender. Our responsibility towards clinical accuracy, social justice, and health equity demands that we improve communication about sex and gender in prenatal screening. Do you feel like that's the that's the nail on the head thing? Yeah, you know, I think this is an area of genetics that we're really erasing trans and intersex people and really doing a disservice to those communities. You know, as genetic counselors, we educate patients on all sorts of genetic underpinnings for things. And if we're going to educate on the genetic underpinnings of sex, 
we need to do it in an accurate and appropriate way. Otherwise, we're w- spreading widespread misinformation about sex and gender, and that that has long-term consequences for those communities. I think the argument that sex is not equal to gender is in some ways the strongest because it's, you know, it's so clearly and simply true, right? That um, it's something we understand. You also list reasons, which I have more mixed feelings about, about why sex information based on chromosomes is fraught anyway. Well, one thing I think about with that is the intersex community, right? And I think that um, for a lot of intersex folks, their sex chromosomes didn't equal their sex. And I think that we're, we don't talk about this as much as we should, but sex chromosomes are not the only determinant of sex. Hormones play a role, the environment plays a role, other genes play a role. And I think that by saying that sex chromosomes determine sex, we're pathologizing a lot of intersex identities, whereas a lot of intersex folks feel like they have normal, you know, have normal human variation and just have variations in their sex characteristics. And so I think that if we tell someone, oh, the sex is female based on um, XX chromosomes, and then maybe the baby has a penis or something like that, then that can cause um, uh, those identities to be further pathologized, whereas there are a lot of other things that also contribute to sex. I So I think it's a lot easier to get into the conversation. I'm picturing actually being that position, right? Calling out these results. And I think to say, let me be clear that's sex that what we're talking about here is sex and 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 sex is not gender is a straightforward thing to say to somebody and i would think it would be relatively easy to hear right it's but so you say in the piece that it's not uncommon which it is not for people to move away from the gender they were assigned at birth and it's not uncommon but it's also not not the the not typical, right? So you know, ninety seven or something percent of people are going to grow up in the gender that they are assigned at birth, or even you know, live comfortably within that identity. Um, hmm. Laura, I think I might push back on that a little bit because um, I think a lot of those statistics come out of surveys in which individuals are are cold called or demographic forms where people really aren't sure where that information is going. And so the, I think there's a, a real reticence and for a real reason of individuals not wanting to disclose uh, gender identities that they have. And so, you know, we have some statistics that say, um, something like anywhere from one to three percent of the population identifies as transgender or non-binary, but I don't think that's a perfect representation. So I just want to push back on on that statistic a little bit. Um, so you don't think because those are your the numbers I got was were from your piece, right? Where you were, and I was actually using the larger number in, in what you were saying, which is to say, if you just look at people under a certain age, then many more, which makes sense, right? Because Look, I'm a couple of generations older than you guys. Welcome to the field. You're <laughs> a lot younger than me. And obviously, the there were there have always been transgender people. Um, but it was a, a, many, many people who might have had some you know, people handled things differently. The, 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 the sense of there being an option was was quite different. And, you know, 
these are social categories. That's kind of the point of this is that these are social categories, right? Like that you're not defined by your chromosomes or but that gender isn't defined by your biology. So we are handling it differently at this moment in time. We could be handling it differently again uh, at a later moment in time. I, I think I think it's really interesting. I personally feel like, okay, I just in, fully in support of anybody doing whatever they need to do to live comfortably in this very difficult world. I think it's hard to be a human. And and like, if this makes people happier, then I'm like 100% for it. But I could also see a different moment in time or a different generation saying what they want out of the gender categories is more flexibility in what it means to be a woman, more flexibility in what it means to be a man, you know, and that maybe for some people that would be a different. So like these things could change over time in both directions is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, and, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think when we're thinking about rare things, um, we also have to think about other things we talk about in genetics, right? So if we're talking about the underpinnings of sex and gender, you know, 3% of the population is trans or, you know, whatever percent that is, that's astronomically higher than most autosomal recessive conditions we're talking about in prenatal, yet we do have more specificity when we're talking about those conditions. You know, if we're saying one person's a carrier and one person is not found to be a carrier of a recessive condition, often we say the chance is reduced um, to have a child with whatever condition that we're looking at. And so, you know, 2% of the population has red hair, right? So, you know, we have to think about kind of what do we count is small because in genetics we're talking about small proportions for a lot of things and we take all of that seriously as well mm -hmm. yeah by the way I always use red hair because I have red hair as that <laughs> like sort of neutral thing I was like what if we all walked in and we're like I'm so sorry Mrs. So-and-so your baby is going to be a ginger you know like that sort of um, <laughs> that's my go-to so it's funny that you picked that example uh yeah um I'm just saying, I think it's an easier sell to people having those conversations to say, don't, you know, gently and politely move them away to the correct term and explain why you're doing it. I, I think that's kind of almost a no brainer, like, like, get away from that term gender and explain why you're doing it, because it is a good opportunity. And I do 100% agree with your point that if the people who specialize in genetics aren't using language carefully, we'll never convince anybody else to lose. Like it's totally incumbent on us to do more than reflect back what we hear on these sensitive points. I think it's a hard sell to go into there and say, your child has XX chromosomes. Chances are they will identify as a girl, but they may not identify as a girl. And like, that's a long discussion at a point in time when people are Maybe the difference between whether it's 97% or 95% or it's they're they're going to start out by assuming that they have a girl. That's I cannot see selling people away from that point. Do you see what I'm saying? And I'm just wondering, like, OK, where do we find the line between here's the amount of educating we're doing and here's the amount of meeting our patients where they are that we're doing right so that we don't alienate people who are very, very excited. Yeah. And I, I think there is, you know, there's such a joy in disclosing normal prenatal genetic screening or, or diagnostic testing results. And I think it can, I think all prenatal genetic counselors and, and um, can get into this field because 
there, um, there is a, a joy in sharing a patient's excitement. And I also think that we as a profession have a duty to be accurate in our language. And when we're disclosing screening results, when we're talking about residual risk, we as a profession have a dedication to accuracy, to accurately representing the um, significance of genetic testing results. And for me, this is a matter of accuracy in that I know sex chromosomes are not determinant of someone's gender. And when I'm disclosing those results and a patient brings in gendered language to the conversation, I, I do push back because it's a matter of accuracy, but it's also a, a matter of justice. We do know that transgender and intersex individuals are, are disproportionately impacted by violence, that their um, that rights for gender diverse folks are being eroded by legislation, millions, oh, <laughs> exaggeration there, hundreds of pieces of legislation that have just been passed in the last year. And so I feel it is a matter of accuracy, but I also feel that it is a matter of justice that I am doing my part in my sphere of my profession to accurately represent genetic information in a way that is not weaponized against gender, the gender diverse community. And kind of piggybacking off of that, I we can't do it if other OB providers are not doing it as well, right? If we are telling the patient one thing, but then an ultrasonographer or an OBGYN is saying another thing, then the patient's going to get mixed signals. And honestly, that's going to erode our trust with them. So it's really something that we need to do institutionally in our notes that we write in the way NIPT is advertised by labs, for example, in how all of the providers are talking about it, because otherwise the message is not going to get across. Um, and I think that, as Hannah was saying, you know, there are long-term effects for this, not just with an individual patient, but in societal understanding of sex and gender. As we see more legislation passed this year that is anti-transgender, you know, with athlete bans and gender-affirming um, therapy bans, or if we're thinking about um, other harmful legislation that uses genetics as a reason to say that someone is not trans because their genetics say they're not, which is, we know it's just false. So I think that if we're patient facing and we have the opportunity to do this education, we do have the obligation. Uh, so I think, first of all, your point of, about the structural issues and addressing it directly to some of the labs and their language and how it's presented and how it's advertised and how it's marketed is a fabulous point. And it's one I haven't heard before. So I, I really think that's uh, incredibly important and, and true. Very interesting there. I have to say, one of the most emotionally salient moments of my own training, so this goes back 20 odd years ago, I was at a, a, a hospital, a big hospital setting, and uh, a doctor who was urologist called a meeting and he wanted to meet with representatives from um, obstetrics and from genetics. And the point was, when kids or babies are born intersex, like, what do we do and how do we handle it? What's the protocol? So this was 20 odd years ago, sort of trying to establish it. And the, the, the man started the meeting, uh, the surgeon started the meeting 
by telling this one story of a child who was born and they did what was then standard, which was a sort of the atypical genitals. And they looked at this child's genitals and they said, there's not really enough material here to sort of have a normal penis. So we'll make this child into a girl. Uh, and that was, you know, this literally called it the rule of thumb. I don't know if you've heard that before, but literally if there wasn't a thumb's worth of penis, then make, make the child a girl. And so he did that surgery. And when that child was eight or nine years old, she came back to the hospital for a follow-up surgery of a very minor nature. And he, who seemed like a very nice man, he said, I never want to like, you know, appear with a child. I always go and meet them the day before. So when they see my face with a mask in the operating room, they, they're comforted. That's a familiar face. And I always spend some time with them the night before. So the night before he went and sat on that kid's bed to spend some time with her and talk. And he said to her, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, sometimes I want to be a policeman and sometimes I want to be a fireman. But most of the time, I just only want to be a boy. And he clearly had called this entire meeting together because he had found it so heartbreaking. He said, I did that to that child. I took a knife and did that to that child. And we were wrong. And I remember having a conversation with the genetic counselor. Now, mind you, I was a student trainee, so, so I tended to speak up because that's me. There had to be some limits. But I said to the, to, to the uh, person, I was like, well, there wasn't a medical emergency, right? There wasn't a medical emergency in that moment. You could, they could have waited and seen what the kid was like. And she said, it's a medical emergency for the parents. They can't even call the grandparents and say the first question everybody's going to ask is, is it a boy or a girl? And if you don't have an answer, you can't even call the parents. And I, I, I'm, you know, like I it was remembered that it struck me then. It strikes me now. It's really lived with me as this. Basically, it is a disaster, not a disaster. But it's 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 unexpected and can be quite difficult. And what she was saying is. If you throw the family into crisis, it's a crisis for the baby as well, um, which was not an untenable point of view, except that it made a bunch of assumptions, right, about that this had to be a disaster or whatever, which I don't think anyone would make that comment in that way today. So, mm. but and, it and I, with me that there's this moment where the agenda of the baby and the agenda of the family can be so different. Yeah, and I feel for the intersex community in so many ways because they have been abused by the medical system and they continue to be abused by the medical system as genital, you know, infant genital surgeries are still a thing. What baffles me is these surgeries often are for parental distress. And since when do you treat parental distress with surgery? We should be treating parental distress with conversations, you know, therapy even, but not surgery on an infant, unnecessary surgery on an infant that can be so traumatizing for people as they grow up as often people are also not even told that this happened to them. Um, and so I think that, I, unfortunately, um, our medical system has so far to go in terms of how we treat intersex people. Even if you think about genetics curriculums, we talk about it as disorders of sex development or differences of sex development even, but a lot of intersex people really fight those terms and are not okay with those terms. In intersex lectures, we show a ton of pictures of genitals. Why are we doing that? It's just, it's depathologizing and, or, sorry, it is, pathologizing and also dehumanizing. And so I think 
you know, we don't talk about intersex rights enough in our curriculums, in our practice, but I think we have a long, long way to go to do for these patients and people. Kim, this was, um, this was, I, I was interested in sort of looking into, I felt for both of you, this is something you guys uh, entered the field with this passion, right? Is this something that pre-existed your, your even starting genetic counseling? I'm, I'm intrigued and um, it's a positive thing. It's a thing I respond to positively. I love people that come into this field with so much passion for advocacy. Um, so what awoke this in the two of you? And did you were both at Stanford. Did you know each other there? Unfortunately, um, Kim and I did not overlap, though I wish we would have. Um, but I'd say for me, um, LGBTQI plus rights has always been important for me. I identify as a bisexual and multiracial cisgender woman. And I think having that identity and having an identity that doesn't fit strictly within the categories of sexual orientation or or race um, has just really uh, given me personally a, a perspective on how categorical identity does not serve anyone, including the majority, and how categories are continually weaponized against individuals with marginalized identities. So this is is personal to me, but also even within the LGBTQIA plus community, I, I do hold a lot of privilege as someone who is white passing, has some straight privilege as being a bisexual person. Um, and so this has always been something that I knew I wanted to leverage my um, my place as a clinician um, and do my work that I could in the reproductive health space and in genetic counseling to increase inclusivity for for peoples whose identities uh, didn't fix, fit strictly within the gender binary or the sex binary because I, I really I personally I do not think the gender binary or sex binary serves our society at large. I think that it forces individuals into um, into adopting um, an inflexibility in personalities, in life choices, um, and so I, I think this is a, a very personal. Uh, mission for me as it is professional, but I'll let Kim speak for herself. Can yeah, you, can, and you know, yeah. Sorry, can you maybe talk a little bit about um, well, your 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 own motivation, but also maybe so this is a point you've made about how we can be better with our patients, but also for the field itself. Where do you see um, need for change? Ooh, I have a lot to say to that, but I guess to start, um, so I came into the field a couple years before Hannah, and we have a similar background. You know, I'm a queer person. I'm also a multiracial, and I came into this field and really didn't have any queer peers that I knew of. I didn't know any queer faculty members. I really just felt alone in the field, and so, you know, people talk to me, and they're like, oh, Kim, you're such a powerful advocate, and I kind of push back on that, too, because I feel like in a lot of ways, I was forced to be a powerful advocate because I felt like when I was in grad school, I felt like I didn't see any represent queer representation, and I really wanted to kind of change that. I wanted to really interrogate the practices that we have surrounding queer health um, and see where we're actively complicit and actively harming 
the queer community in genetics. And that's what brought me to kind of advocating for the trans community. It all started with me researching kind of how are we doing cancer care for trans individuals who've undergone certain gender affirmation, for example. And then that led me into other projects with the intersex community in this project with NIP, NIPT, for example. And so I think, again, a lot of the people doing this work in the field are members of the community who really want to see changes. And unfortunately, the homo- homogeneity, the homogeneity. <laughs> yeah. homogeneity of our field is, is, harming the care we're giving our patients. And so in terms of our field moving forward, obviously diversity is a problem. We all know that. But something I'm seeing is a big push to diversify the field without actually having the resources to support our diverse colleagues. So really, that's what I see as the next step is how can we support our diverse colleagues so people feel comfortable in the field, not just diversifying without having those resources in place, because we know that that can be really harmful and traumatic for minoritized individuals. Kim, do you feel like it's getting any better or that, no. (laughs) Somebody entering grad school now, is is they likely to see more representation, to feel more at ease in genetic counseling than, I don't know, when you started school, whatever that was, X years ago? I'm cautiously optimistic. I think there are a lot of really great grassroots advocacy efforts within our field. You know, the MGPN has been really instrumental in finding community in the field for folks with different marginalized identities, um, mostly focusing on race in the MGPN. There's also a queer Slack channel, which has helped connect people. So I think in a lot of ways, social media has helped people connect and feel more at home in the field. And I think now um, there are more diverse people coming into the field. But again, I I also see so many instances of, of people really experiencing aggressions or microaggressions. And I think we have a lot of work to do. So again, I'm cautiously optimistic and I think people have the drive, but don't necessarily have the tools at this time. So I think that most genetic counselors really agree that we need to diversify the field. And now it's a matter of making sure that we have the tools to support our peers. Do you guys have any specific suggestions for training programs? I think that one um, that is intertwined with my own experience and um, experiences documented by research that's been done on folks with marginalized identities in genetic counseling programs is that the burden of education um, can sometimes be placed very heavily on individuals with marginalized identities. And and what I mean by that is that individuals who are uh, BIPOC or individuals who identify as LGBTQ plus are asked by their programs to provide education on their community to to their genetic counseling peers. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes students feel like they have the bandwidth, feel like they have the passion, but I think all too often the uh, person with the token minority identity is asked to speak on behalf of perhaps all non-white people or on on all uh, non-cis people or all non-straight people. So I think that it is important for faculty members to 
be really conscientious about the burden that's being placed on students, especially while those students are might be going through their own struggles. I think another thing that comes into play is, is during the admissions process is that there is a norm of a lot of self-disclosure in the application process and in the interview process. Applicants are encouraged to share a lot of their, their background stories, um, things that might um, intersect with their racial or ethnic identity or other identities. And I think it's important for folks on the admissions committee to recognize that they are asking a lot of disclosure by prospective students who might come from communities who that have a um, that because of the relationship between medical institutions and their communities might have a lot of reason to distrust institutions or dis distrust the majority. Um, so I would encourage all training programs to reconsider the burden that they're placed on placing on their current students in terms of education, as well as understanding that they are asking applicants to recount potentially um, vulnerable and potentially traumatic experiences in diversity statements and in interviews, and to treat those disclosures with the respect and confidentiality that they deserve. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, Hannah, and it does go on a lot. I mean, there is this sense, I don't think it's asked, like, but I mean, as someone who sat on the other side of a lot of admissions uh, meetings, but disclosure, whether it's about your background, about your sexual identity, about your um, what genetic diseases you have, there's a lot of it where it's that it's not required in any way, but it feels like a way in, right? Like it's very, it's uh, it's, it's 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 sort of like you've got this asset of value, uh, and you can share or not share, and I. I do think it creates a pressure for people, uh, um, especially in a competitive situation, to share things that maybe they feel comfortable and maybe they don't feel comfortable. And I think it also sort of discounts the whole world of somebody who, you know, there's, there's just people out there who have their whole own struggle that they choose not to talk to you about uh, or doesn't have sort of a name. So I, I think it's it's difficult. It's But it's it's I'm telling you, sitting on the other side of the classroom, um, I also find myself at times, you know, when I'm talking about racism and history of medicine and how it affects outcomes and so on, and I'm like, I feel uncomfortable as a white woman. It's like sitting there going on and on about this and that. Like, it's it's it, it's also not my experience to speak to. So it's it's a little uncomfortable. I don't want to make it their job, and I I, I don't want to overstep the bounds of what's my job and that's a line to negotiate and I'm not asking for any pity right like that's my actual job to negotiate that line but it is it is complicated and I do really appreciate your feedback and I I think it's important. I think that many many applicants feel what you're describing as pressure yeah and I I think that this the uh sort of norm of disclosure, you know, has been um, present for what I 
um, intuit is a long time in the genetic counseling application process, but I, I think it's important for interviewers to be aware of what the power dynamics are in the room. Um, cis, white, het, prospective genetic counseling applicant might feel more comfortable disclosing a history of um, a psychiatric diagnosis than someone who doesn't hold any of those identities. And so I, I think it's just important to understand that every um, applicant is not coming from the same place of, of privilege. And um, to your point, Laura, about um, your experiencing um, your experience in lectures, I, I do think that another thing that I would um, ask uh, lecturers to take into account is the fact that the a lot of issues around social injustice are adjacent to almost every topic in uh, genetic counseling curriculum. Um, and I think there's there's been increasingly more conversations about this um, in the past few years, but I think that uh, for every lecture topic, for every course, having um, program lecturers consider what aspect of their topic um, relates to issues of social injustice, relates to issues of accessibility, how historically um, this tool or this technique has been developed only with one population in mind or been weaponized against um, other communities. And I, I can understand that there is uh, increasing pressure on speaking about these issues with with sensitivity and with care but I, I think that that is so important especially for those students in programs who might be the only ones holding a identity or from a community that's been particularly affected um, by systemic racism. The other thing I was going to say is, you know, I am a faculty member in a program, so I do work at BU's program, and I think about these issues a lot. And I think that, as Hannah said, we can't just have the DEI class. We can't have the, the gay lecture. We need to incorporate those things into all the topics that we're listening to and talking about. Like, if we're talking about cancer screening for breast cancer risk, okay, what does breast cancer risk or look like for a trans person? And how do we screen trans people who've undergone top surgery or who have taken certain hormones? Things like that within those lectures, instead of just having them as separate lectures, they're not separate issues, they're all intertwined. And so I think that having those DEI classes, while well-intentioned, aren't the solution. And, and I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, talking about identities that you do not hold yourself. And I think that can be challenging. And I think we all have to do a lot of self-education. But I will also say that it's so much more pressure for someone who d does hold those identities to talk about those topics sometimes. You know, as a queer person, I feel compelled to speak about queer topics a lot within the program. But every time I do, my, you know, my voice starts shaking. I, I feel an extra amount of pressure because I don't want to do my community harm. And I feel like I'm the only one who can represent that community in a lot of ways. And that's really challenging. And so I think if there are more knowledgeable allies who could also talk on the topic, that would be really believing um, for a lot of folks who do hold these identities. Well, I'm, I have to say, one thing that gives me a lot of hope um, is the extent to which in our program, change has been driven over the last five or six, 10 years, whatever, bottom up. 
the students themselves coming in and caring about, this is a big wide variety of issues that we've talked about here today, but social justice issues and um, them pressing, pressing us to be better, uh, pressing the field to be better. And I've just seen so much of that. And for someone who came into this field, the idea of studying LC issues, right? Like that was my emphasis from day one. It's just exciting for me. It's exciting for me. It's like, it's exciting for me to see you guys here speaking out, like not just stewing about this in your private moments, but like writing something, coming on this podcast, getting this this out there for discussion, um, wherever it'll lead. You know, I, I, I think at uh, the very least it addresses a little tiny fraction of the thing you're talking about, right? Those voices. And so I'm really, I, I hear what you're saying, Kim. I hear it's not always easy, and I'm really appreciative that you're both here today. By the way, you don't sound shaky voiced. You both sound incredibly eloquent <laughs> top of it, and I wouldn't imagine that anybody listening thinks, oh, it's hard for them to speak, because obviously it is not. <laughs> but thank you so much. Um, I, I'm just grateful for the way that you and a whole bunch of your generational peers are changing this field. I think you know, though there's pushes and pulls and we'll go backwards and forwards. And, and, and like we were saying in the beginning, I, what language we end up with, what we come up with 10 years from now, it'll all look a little bit different, but moving forward. And it's really, um, it is a point of light and a moment in time when it feels like a lot of things are not moving forward. So I'm super appreciative for you being here today and like having this conversation undefensively and openly and uh, really with an open mind, I think. So thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Kim. And thank you all for listening. Take care and uh, be safe, everybody. Today's podcast is brought to you by Natera, a pioneer and global leader in cell-free DNA testing. Natera's panorama has been trusted in over 3 million pregnancies and was recently validated in the SMART study, the largest prospective NIPT study, which demonstrated improved accuracy and positive predictive value for 22Q11.2 deletions. Visit natera.com forward slash 22Q to learn more.